2 Corinthians chapter 5. Our text tonight is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's really going to revolve around just one or two principal verses. I'll be referring to some other text as well. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 11 and reading through the chapter. This is the word of God. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And we trust the spirit who had Paul to write that to help us understand it tonight. Already, uh, you could see once again a classic text from the Apostle Paul with repeated phrases to uh, repeated times, this phrase, in Christ. In my studies, I was reminded or learned of another introductory statement about being united to Christ. One person writing says, Christianity is an experimental faith. This does not mean that it is to be tentatively tried like an experiment in the chemistry lab, but that it is to be personally experienced as understanding, encounter, and commitment to a person who has already committed himself to us. Jesus Christ The living, loving Lord is to be met in the gospel, encountered in its preaching, 
experienced in the life of faith. This is the beating heart of Christian faith, without which we have only a creed, formal and cold in our mouths. And he quotes from an old Puritan. I'm not too familiar with this one. His name is Thomas Jacome. Thomas Jacome wrote, Take heed of looking no farther than merely a Christ sent in history, his incarnation. Don't be satisfied with just that fact. Everyone knows, he says, there is a twofold sending of Christ. The first was Christ sending to be man, his incarnation. The second is Christ sending into man. A Christ in our flesh must be accompanied with a Christ in our hearts. There must be not only a Christ sent to us into this world, but also a Christ sent into us, or he will not profit us. That's the very same thought that Calvin writes as he starts book three. Just a, um, a brief review on now. This is sermon number four, and we're going to get to a major point of application. But just a brief review from the earlier three sermons. Union with Christ fulfills all the new covenant promises. That comes from the first sermon where we referred to Jeremiah 31. And basically, I think it links what we have, Old and New Testament, it's a way of linking, of course, all of Scripture together. Union with Christ is an intimate, vital, and spiritual union accomplished through the work of the Holy Spirit. This comes out of Elder Harmon's sermon. It's a relationship that is objective and real and that into which we can grow and mature in this life. Union with Christ. Um, uh, a classic biblical statement of that I find in Galatians 2.20, one of those most insightful revelations of how Paul reveals, you might say, the inner workings of his life and mind and heart and faith. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Union with Christ, we talked about last week, there were some insufficient understandings of the Christian life. Where, where depending on, uh, we may not say it this way, but there are ways where Christians, they're, they're real Christians, but they approach living their daily lives with a Christ that is basically seen as outside of them and distant from them. And we mentioned three of them. You might call it Christ the leader. He's out there saying, follow me, and I'm going to try to get up all the energy and strength I can and follow him. But he's out there, you see. There was Christ the gift giver. We pray and he comes by and he gives us a gift, but not really himself the supreme gift. He's outside and distant from us. And then Christ, the sender of the Holy Spirit. But our understanding of the Holy Spirit is one who functions as a replacement for an absent Christ. 
and that too. All of those are not full-orbed and mature uh, New Testament Christianity. And I come back to my quote from Alexander McLaren concerning the reality, the fullness from the prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, McLaren said, To begin with, let me say in the plainest, simplest, strongest way I can that that dwelling of Christ in the believing heart is to be regarded as being a plain, literal fact. As much a fact as your belief that God answers prayer, your belief that God forgives sin in Christ. So let me go now to a principal application. We entitled this sermon, yes, it is the fourth sermon, but I believe I put the title in the bulletin, Who Am I? Who am I? And so... Now we see, we're going to see how this doctrine addresses the, a most critical foundational issue of living. And we're going to see, I hope, how though these documents, these New Testament documents are 2,000 years old, they speak fully and wonderfully into the confusion of the 21st century culture of the American nation. Who am I? My identity in Christ. And as we get into this, keep in mind Romans 12, 1 and 2. Because what we're going to be talking about, faith, a person of faith, a Christian person, we speak to ourselves. We tell ourselves messages. We, we hopefully are telling ourselves the truth. Uh, we, we hopefully have friends that come along and, and help bring truth into our minds. Because whether it's Satan, the world, our experiences, often we, would, we tend to interpret those wrongly, badly, um, without faith. And so remember what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. Paul, in that, as he starts the application in Romans, most seriously, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And so that's what we're talking about in this sermon. We're talking about you having your mind transformed and finding from particularly the doctrines we've been speaking of the, the biblical answer to a crucial question concerning you. Who are you? Who are you? It's a question concerning personal identity. Um, Rankin Wilburn has written a wonderful book on this, and I quote, Ralph Ellison uh, happened to be the author of the book, the classic novel, The Invisible Man. And what's interesting is the, um, the thought behind his writing of that. He wrote that book 
because he thought that often he was invisible, not in terms of the movie or the book, but in the fact that in normal life, people seem to overlook him or whatever, treat him as if he didn't exist or treat him as a different person. And so the book or movie actually had a, a philosophical backdrop to it, as many of the classic novels did. So he's the author of the classic novel, The Invisible Man, and he was once asked, would you say that the search for identity is primarily an American theme? He answered, it is the American theme. We think about about many of the classic stories in literature, Huckleberry Finn, how is he trying to answer the question, who am I? Jay Gatsby, what about Luke Skywalker, not knowing who he really is? What about Princess Elsa? I'm not as familiar with that. That's from that, uh, yeah, the Frozen one. But apparently that just went like gangbusters. And uh, Princess Elsa is also feeling terrified that people will discover what she's really like. All of these are stories about identity. Uh, And perhaps the theme of identity dominates our stories because a search for identity dominates our lives. Are we like Pinocchio, longing to make ourselves real? Oh, if I could just be a real boy, you know? What about... Jay Gatsby again, quote, didn't want you to think I was just some nobody. We will do whatever we can to prove that we're somebody. Or there's old Rocky Balboa. He put it in the most American films this way. He says, all I want to do is go the distance so I'll know I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. The main thing in all of these things is this issue of identity. It is the American theme, Wilburn says. And union with Christ, this biblical doctrine, gives us, on the one hand, a, at least at one point in your life as coming to know the Lord in a saving way, it should have been a new self-understanding found outside of yourself in Christ. Union with Christ gives us a true and right answer to the question, who am I? So the scripture text that I read tonight, 2 Corinthians 5, we picked up at verse um, 11 there. Paul is speaking about his ministry. And you you know a little bit about 2 Corinthians. You know that uh, false apostles had come in, disrupted the church. The church is questioning the ministry of the Apostle Paul and there are various points at which he's seeking to to, uh, um, bring himself back into their hearts, uh, that they would open their hearts to him as they should. And so in verses 11 through 15, he speaks about his motivation for ministry. And we're just, I'm just going to build to where we look at verses 16 and 17 particularly. But just to set a little bit of the context, in verses 11 through 15, he is addressing to them, wants them to know his motivation. And negatively stated, Paul 
does not seek the commendation of men. And already in that fact, you should begin to pick up on aspects of how important it is to answer the question, who are you? Who are you? Paul will say in verses 11 through 13, he's, he says uh, there, we're not commending ourselves to you again, giving cause you boast of us, about us, things like that, that you might be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in your heart. Um, so he, they, they are, excuse me, I'm sorry, Paul does not conduct his ministry to receive praise from other people. He's not going to commend himself at that way. He is motivated by the fear of the Lord. He says in verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. It's not the fear of being rejected by God, because Paul does not fear that, uh, but he is understanding the weightiness, the seriousness of this gospel of reconciliation that he has been entrusted with. So he is going to persuade men, which means he will seek to evangelize men. He's going to conduct his ministry knowing that he is seen and known by God before whom his whole life is laid bare. And he is to be a faithful servant with this responsibility. So he states it negatively. He's not going to do it for the commendation of men, but he states it positively in verses 14 and 15. He is constrained, he says, by the love of Christ. For the love of Christ, verse 14, controls us because we've concluded this. And he goes on and begins to speak. Interestingly enough, using this language that I was speaking to you about from Romans chapter 5, there's this person the last Adam who has died, and if he has died, then all in him have died. And he begins to work through those things in this kind of concise statement. But it is the love of Christ that is controlling him and constraining him. All right, and so that leads us, so he's talking about his motivation, and he leads up to this transformation of his perspective. He spoke about the motivation for his ministry here, but here he is going to speak in these two verses especially about how his perspective concerning issues like motivation have been changed. I hope I'm not losing you because here's the heart of what I'm trying to communicate. He speaks about how his perspective has been changed, first of all, as he looks out on people in general. And you would include the people within the church. He says in verses 16 and 17, now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That phrase, according to the flesh, means by the world's standards. Paul is saying, 
I am not going to look at you, the church members. I'm not even going to look. I'm not going to look at the philosophers in Athens. I'm not going to look at the Thessalonian Jews or whatever. I'm not going to look at them according to the flesh, according to worldly standards such as, well, what? I wonder what race they are. I wonder what socioeconomic position they have. I wonder what their education is. I wonder what their title is. I wonder what their gender is. Uh, all of those things because the controlling thing in Paul is that he is in Christ. We'll get to more to that. Uh, we want to understand that being born again, becoming a Christian, does not mean just mending our ways, changing bad habits, embracing a new list of do's and don'ts. It Becoming a Christian is nothing less than a radical, pervasive, spiritual recreation of you, of yourself, of your heart. Paul's language here is quite, um, he, he, he is so forceful in verse 17 that in the Greek, uh, it is even more abrupt than it is in, in the English. The English smooths it out a little bit. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The he is part is not even in there. The verb and such is not there. In the Greek, it literally reads, if anyone is in Christ, new creation new creation it is that dramatic that deep that fundamental that uh, pervasive that complete change he is saying that a christian is in essence part of the heavenly kingdom of the new age the ultimate age that has invaded we we uh uh it's interesting how sometimes these sermons work together, Will, uh, because you'll remember you are here this morning. Will's, uh, Pastor Will's preaching about John the Baptist and Jesus. They had the same message, repent for what? The kingdom of heaven has entered this old creation. Paul is saying that a Christian is nothing less then a member of that kingdom of heaven, therefore a member of the new creation, the eternal creation that is still walking about in this sinful world. And but, but the implications are enormous. He will therefore not look at other people by these kinds of standards. He will look at them from who he is as a member of that kingdom, of that uh, being bound to that Lord. And of course, what we're going to see is not only does he look at them that way, but we're to learn, as he does, to look at ourselves that way. All right? We're talking about answering the question, who am I? Okay, I've got to press forward here. Um, one person has said... We are reborn microcosms, little parts, 
of the eschatological macrocosm, if you want to get fancy with language. Okay, I want to move now. So, so, so these old things that are passed away then when we're born again, they include all kinds of things. They include certainly a godless, selfish living according to the flesh, um, enmity against God, hardened minds, calloused hearts. The new things that have come include things, of course, the truth, not just a doctrine, you see, not just a, cre- a creed, but the reality of justification by faith, of forgiveness of sins, of new life, a new heart, of adoption, being God's child, hope, and joy, etc. Okay. So let's look for just a moment at how practical this is. I want to give a few examples from our current society. Our current society offers a number, an almost unlimited number of answers to the question, who are you, right? We said at the start how, how documents 2,000 years old speak instantly into this just a few just just a couple of examples just from this last week um, Albert Moeller uh, spoke about uh, several things but in reference to the the question who am I for example there was a doctor who does plastic surgery commenting about how things have changed over the several years that she has been doing plastic surgery. Just so you know. And, it, and if you've had plastic surgery, don't be a, I'm not saying it's sin or whatever, okay? But this is, this is helpful for us to hear. Used to be, the doctor said, a woman generally, most, most of them are women that come in, would come in at the age of about 47, 48, 49, and they would, they would basically want, you might say, to kind of maximize what they used to look like. Try to basically look better. Okay? Now, what is the state today? Well, she said a majority of her clients are like 37 and 38. So now you're a decade earlier. And she says they come in and they know what they want they know the scientific name for the procedure, and they want you to do it. And she said, one of the funny examples was someone would come in and say, say to the doctor, listen, I'm here for uh, nose uh, work. I want the nose of Kim Kardashian. And the doctor says, you know, the doctor's thinking to herself, there's nothing about your head or face that looks like Kim Kardashian. You know, but what do you want me to do? Plant her nose on your face? But you, I mean, what, what are you trying? You see, how, how is that person answering the question, who am I? That's just one. Another interesting one. Do you know that teenagers today, recent sociological study, Teenagers today are more lonely than the elderly in nursing homes. How do you do that? What's going on in that life? 
when all manner of communication is out there, there are more people living than ever before, people all around you. Danielle, I have these conversations with Danielle, and she sent me a link. Two people, two independent people, but um, one of them said, you know, what do you do when you feel like you're a person from another planet? Well, you go through all of these surgeries and things like that and try to make yourself look like an alien. And there's one guy, the second guy, spent over $50,000 to look like an alien. And if you saw him, you would, you, you would think, you know, this guy does resemble some aliens I've seen in Hollywood movies. The real tragedy would be if an alien does come to Earth and he doesn't look like the guy. No. <laughs> but, but those are, I mean, and we could just keep going on and on and on. Let me give you three categories of how the world is seeking to have you answer this question. And then we'll get to a response. Okay. The world wants you to, to answer the question, you are your work. This is your identity through performance. Your busyness, your activity, your ability to earn money, your employment, that fills up the identity void and it defines you. You are your work. Well, you try to get some peace of conscience and some eternal satisfaction out of that answer. The world might say to you, well, no, we won't have you answer the question, you are your work. This is a very important one, what I'm about to say. It'll have you, you'll want to say, you are your history. You are your history. That's identity, um, this person says, through your pedigree. In other words, your background, your family life, your social connections give you a certain community. And also, this is, see, this, this, is, uh, this is so important because so many people, so many Christians struggle with historic events in their life. I had a man, uh, when I was a child, I grew up on a street, and a neighbor down the road was driving his car drunk and hit a person and killed him. Now see, let me give you a, he, he, could, he could go through and perhaps did go through the rest of his life answering the question, who am I? I'm the drunk driver that killed a person. And you can begin to multiply this. I'm the young lady that uh, is no longer a virgin. I'm the person who had an abortion. I'm the lousy guy who divorced my wife. Do you see where I'm going with this? Do you see how we can go down this road that if we wanted to answer the question, I'm the guy that's in poverty. Who are you? Well, I'm, I'm this loser. I'm this guy that has this huge black spot on my record. Answering the question by your history. And of course, it could be the flip side too, right? Uh, my last name is Kennedy or my last name was, or is Bush or whatever, you know, and I'm entitled. 
that's who I am. Well, see. All right, the third one, real quick. You are defined by your passions and feelings. And instantly, we could even fine-tune that. You are your sexuality. You are your gender. You are able to decide those things. You will be, you will live your life. You won't say it this way, but you'll live your life enslaved to your passions and feelings. Now, the Christian responds differently to those three things. In light of 2 Corinthians 5.17, Jesus defines us. Who we were in the old creation is not who we are now. This tyranny of the identity-shaping idols we once pursued, either pursued or were under their dominion, such as a drunk driver who killed a person that that image there, that historic event of the old world, the, uh, we are no longer under the tyranny of that. Our fundamental identity is in Christ, and there are these massive implications to that that eradicate all three categories of what I just said. We no longer shape our identity by our performance, by our work. We can say... If, if you got fired from your job, you could go home and you could say, I am accepted and counted righteous in Christ. God looks at me in Jesus. That's where my identity comes from. Concerning the second category, we, are, we no longer need to shape our identity by some appeal to our pedigree or or if not an appeal to the positive aspects of our history, we no longer define our identity by some negative event in our history. Our social networks, our background, our family economic status, those things. And the last thing you see is also true. We do no longer shape our identity by our passions. And... Uh, you know, that, that case I used about the alien, the person literally said, what do you do when you feel like you're from another planet? Well, I guess I've got to be a slave, as it were, to that feeling and change myself to look like that. No, you don't. We don't do that as Christian people. The great lies of our age, the great statements of our age. Well, you gotta, you gotta live your truth. You do you. The self must be satisfied. That's a bunch of lies. We find our identity in Christ and in Him. There is the power and ability to deal with our feelings and our passions. It's the whole language of the New Testament to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to pursue righteousness. Christian identity must be shaped by the most fundamental truth about ourselves. We are men and women in Christ. And in Christ we are new creatures. He defines us, not sin. 
not the idols of the world. And in that identity, we find true freedom that we would never find out there. Union with Christ, understanding our identity in him, gives us permission to rest. We don't have to go through the... What's interesting is the world is in complete anxiety and and turmoil because now there's this great weight upon people who am I? Well, am I this feeling or am I my work or all these kind of choices and the standards changing? And if you choose this identity, well, what about these hundred others? There's something very liberating and restful when there is only one supreme choice. Lord, I want to be yours and find my identity in you. And as we said uh, We've died to that old way of living. We find in Christ that we can be content in this world. Paul says that he has learned to be content. I can do all things, he says, through Christ who strengthens me. Union with Christ is that antidote to discontentment. Union with Christ, you see, is gives us gives us all of those blessings. I, I, we, could, we had a few months back, uh, Elder Harmon titled the Sunday School series, The Believer's Benefit Package, I believe. And we talked about it, justification by faith. Being the child of God, adoption. Regenerated, given the Spirit who comes in and cries through us, Abba, Father, the sense of adoption. Well, this is a huge topic, but I hopefully you see that here is the one and only answer for the Christian. We throw out all other standards that are related to this world order that is fading away. And we understand what a glory it is to be that simple Christian in Christ with all of the benefits and blessings with the very relationship of the living Christ in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, no one in this room is probably aware of how much ground is left uncovered in such a topic and sermon as this. We know we live in a world that is constantly throwing up messages to us as to who we ought to be or are supposed to be or who should be or what have you. Spirit of the living God, right upon our hearts, we pray this night, this verse, this truth, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things of this passing order have gone away.
the new have come. And because you do it, they have come permanently. They never go away because you have saved us and saved us forever. Thank you. Transform our minds. Give us that rest and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit of knowing that we are yours and you are ours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.